Well, we continue on in our sermon series through the book of 1 Samuel. My sermon this morning entitled, David Escapes as God Delivers. The Apostle Paul of New Testament fame had many close calls, many situations in which his life was on the line. Many, many years after the life of David, the giant slayer, Paul experienced God's deliverance from deadly peril on a number of occasions. In Acts 14, while in Iconium, some of the townspeople wanted to stone Paul, but he learned of their plans and he escaped. Still in Acts 14, Paul was actually stoned by adversaries while he was in Lystra. They assumed that he was dead, but he was not, and he rose from that attack and continued on his missionary journey. Those were two close calls with death that Paul had. Later on in the books of Acts, Acts 21, when Paul had returned to Jerusalem, some fellow Jews from Asia stirred up the crowd, which Paul was speaking to, and they seized Paul with the intention of killing him. The local tribune heard of the chaos and sent soldiers and centurions who put an end to that attempt on Paul's life. In the very next chapter, Paul addressed the crowd that had confronted him the previous day, and they again almost killed him. Again, he was narrowly saved by soldiers. Following these events, Paul's nephew heard of a plot to assassinate him And Paul once again narrowly avoided death when he was sent by military escort to Caesarea. From there, Paul was sent to Rome by sea under the watchful eye of Roman soldiers. But while at sea, a storm arose and the ship ran aground on a reef. The soldiers feared that the prisoners on the ship would escape, and so they planned to kill all of the prisoners of which Paul was one. Once more, Paul is narrowly saved from death. One of the centurions on board did not want to see Paul die, and so he made sure none of the prisoners would be killed. So Paul survived that. He survived the shipwreck. He made it into an island. Even there, his life was threatened. He was bit by a poisonous snake, and yet the Lord miraculously preserved his life. Paul, when it came to close calls, when it came to escaping deadly threats, was the New Testament equivalent of David. But whereas Paul's life was threatened by many different people in many different situations, there really was only one person mainly responsible for the continual attempts to kill David, and that person was Saul. Just like Paul, however, God delivered David. Delivered David through multiple life-threatening dangers, and God used various means to do so. We're gonna consider today's passage in light of the means that God used to deliver David in chapter 19. We're going to consider how David would escape death through entreaty, through evasiveness, through enterprise, and through ecstasy. Point number one, escape through entreaty, verse one through seven. 
The Lord delivers David through the advocacy of Jonathan. Initially, David and Saul's relationship was a positive one. Remember a few weeks ago when we read in the 16th chapter of 1 Samuel, David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Well, the ensuing years, commentators believe at least a couple of years have passed since David first became Saul's armor bearer. In those ensuing years, we have seen Saul plotting and attempting to kill David. And in this passage, his somewhat hidden agenda to kill the giant slayer has come into the open as he shares his morbid desire with those who are close to him. In fact, Saul tries to recruit others to do his evil bidding. And one of his confidants is his son, Jonathan. Now, Jonathan was well aware that his father could rashly deliver commands and those rash decisions could have fatal implications for other people. Do you remember that Saul jeopardized the life of his own son by commanding that nobody consume food of any kind while battling the Philistines? And Jonathan ate some honey. He was at the point of exhaustion. And Saul would have killed him for that. And it turns out, as the people understood, thankfully that command and that decision was wrong. And Jonathan recognizes the wrongness, the sinfulness of his father's plotting and his father's actions against David and so decides to advocate for his friend. Jonathan, we see in treating Saul with an appeal, an appeal based on rational and moral and theological reasons. Logically, Jonathan tells Saul that he shouldn't pursue David's downfall because David has not sinned against you. And because his deeds have brought good to you. Further, Jonathan notes, it would be immoral for Saul to have David killed. Why? Because David took his life in his hand and he struck down the Philistine and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. And finally, from a theological perspective, if Saul killed David or had David killed, it would be a sin against innocent blood. And he would be killing David without cause. Now somewhat surprisingly, this passionate reasoning was successful and David escaped death through Jonathan's advocacy. I think that in in Saul relenting, he is not being deceitful at this point, but rather just giving evidence that he has an unstable heart and an unstable mind. And so Saul swears, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. So we see that God has providentially delivered David through the entreaty of his ally and his friend Jonathan. Jonathan, the very man who would in the long term benefit most from David's demise, he was used by God to save the future king of Israel. As we consider this, I do not see how we cannot be reminded this morning of another son of a king who advocates to his father on behalf of his friends. The Apostle John wrote, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, 
We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That's 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. This verse which speaks of the advocacy of Christ is our very reason as believers for hope. Jesus as our advocate is our remedy for despair. You see, an advocate is a person who pleads one's case. An advocate supports and intercedes on behalf of one who is in need. And as believers, we are still very much in need because we still sin. But as believers, we are the friends of Jesus. And for his friends, Jesus pleads their case. He pleads their case before the Father. Jesus, through his death on the cross, has paid the penalty for our sins. Jesus has propitiated the just wrath of God against sin through the sacrifice of himself. And he advocates in that way to the Father. Now, I'm not going so far as to say this morning that Jonathan is a type of Christ. I think that argument could be made. Yet in his advocacy that delivers David from death, surely that can turn the eyes of our hearts to see and rejoice in our advocate, to see and rejoice in Christ's mediating work on our behalf. To all those here this morning who have repented of their sin and have put their faith in Christ, thereby becoming his friends, Jesus becomes a divine advocate for you, delivering you and me from sin and from the righteous judgment it incurs. That's something to rejoice in this morning. David escaped death through the entreaty of Jonathan, but that's just one of the ways that God delivers him in this chapter. Point number two, escape through evasiveness, verses eight through 10. The Lord delivers David through David's own dexterity. Now, many of the older generation, and perhaps some of you younger congregants, will have played two time-worn but beloved games that are still in production by the toy maker Hasbro. Operation is a game that features an operating table printed with a cartoon image of a patient called Cavity Sam. Cavity Sam has a big red light bulb for a nose. The table has various openings labeled with funny and made-up ailments. One cavity is for the spare rib and another for the wishbone. And each cavity has a corresponding piece of plastic that goes into it. And the main objective of that game is for players to use a pair of tweezers to remove these plastic objects from Cavity Sam's body without touching the edges of the opening. Now, if you touch the metal edges of the opening with those tweezers, the patient's nose comes on and an unnerving buzzing sound indicates failure. There's another game that many of us older congregants have played, and that game is called Perfection. 
It is a game that has a spring-loaded red board on a timer with different shaped holes in it and correspondingly shaped pieces that are to be inserted into those holes before the time runs out. If the time runs out, the board pops up, the pieces are scattered, and the players are startled. How many of you have played one of those two games? Yeah, before you young ones were playing Fortnite or Call of Duty, we were having fun with operation and perfection. Now, the premise of both these games, in terms of their attraction to players, is that the players take their turn, and as they do so, they are in a state of constant tension while performing an action that requires fine motor skills. The players, if you remember, remain on edge until their task is complete. Now, I want you to imagine playing one of those games. But I want you to imagine that instead of a red nose being let up, instead of a buzzing sound, or instead of a spring-loaded release, that failure would be indicated to you by someone throwing a spear at you. Because that's what David was experiencing. David is playing his harp. He is using fine motor skills and concentration to play his instrument. And then every once in a while, a spear would be thrown at him. We see this happen, not for the first time, in chapter 19. David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall. Now I can imagine David playing that harp. And it says in the text that Saul was holding his spear. Now imagine David playing the harp when Saul wasn't holding a spear would have been much more relaxing than playing when Saul actually had a spear in his hand. Now, David, in the first deliverance in chapter 19, God uses the entreaty of Jonathan, but his escape in this case is through his naturally developed physical abilities. That's how he avoids death. David was surely an athletically gifted individual from an early age. A clumsy, uncoordinated person would not be able to defeat bears and defeat lions and defeat giants and defeat Philistines in battle. David's agility and David's strength, abilities that were given to him by God and developed over his lifetime, they allowed him to evade death and escape in this instance. It caused me to wonder, and I would ask you to wonder with me, how often we attribute our successes in life, whether they be avoiding harm or achieving great exploits, how often we attribute those successes to our own natural abilities without seeing God's hand in it. I remember being aware from a very early age in regards to my football, how my size and my strength allowed me to succeed where many other young men, though they be smarter or more agile than me, could never have had success. Offensive linemen who play at increasingly elite levels need to be over six feet tall. They need to have a frame that can carry a body mass of over 300 pounds and at least enough dexterity and strength 
to move that body violently when it was required. Now that's a very small percentage of the population. So many people would not be able to do that just based on the genetics that they were given. And so I remember being cognizant of God's providential dealing with me such that I could do that. And we need to consider this morning God's providences in our success and in our natural abilities so that we might avoid arrogance and pride and so that we might maintain a grateful, humble spirit in regards to God's blessings in our lives. We need to remind ourselves that as the Apostle Paul said, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? That's 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Being aware of God's sovereign and providential work in our lives is an aid to us walking humbly with our God. David escaped Saul a second time through the God-given skill and providentially developed agility and dexterity that he had received. As we continue through this story, we will see, I think, without a doubt, that the author intends us to understand that behind these things that help David escape is a sovereign God who is delivering David. We have seen this in David's escape through entreaty and his escape through evasiveness. Evasiveness. David also escapes through the resourcefulness of his wife. Point number three, escape through enterprise, verses 11 through 17. The Lord delivers David through Michal's bold action. David is extricated from harm by another family member of Saul. Saul's daughter, now married to David, helps David escape through some very enterprising actions. Michal understands that for David, home will not provide the safety and security that we all look for when we enter into our residence. Saul sends some men to David's house that they might kill him, probably looking to kill him in the morning. The quick-thinking Michal springs into action. She warns David of the danger he faces, and she lowers him down on a rope so that he can escape. And to further David's chances of avoiding death at the hands of Saul's servants, Michal also deceived her husband's adversaries by placing an image in their bed, even using the height of a goat to seem like hair. She wanted to fool everyone that David was sleeping in his bed. And the next morning, Saul's servants discovered her ruse. And Saul, surely angry at her betrayal, asked his daughter, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? Well, Michal adds a lie to her previous deception by claiming David had threatened her life and indicating that she had to help him for her own safety. Now, this episode in chapter 9 raises an interesting question of whether it is morally acceptable to deceive others or to be dishonest in order to save lives or achieve good ends. I think, fortunately, I don't have time for that ethical dilemma this morning. Nevertheless, I do want to draw your attention to an important principle in interpreting the Bible, particularly as it pertains to deriving ethics from historical narratives. The principle can be 
Stated simply, description is not necessarily prescription. Description is not necessarily prescription. Just because an author describes something as so doesn't mean that author intends to prescribe those actions to us as examples to follow. In a classic book on biblical interpretation called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, authors Stuart and Fee lay out six principles for interpreting historical narratives. The first one reinforces this idea that description does not necessarily mean prescription. And it's, this is their first principle. Determining what is normative for Christians is related primarily to what the narrative was intended to teach. Determining what is normative for Christians is related primarily to what the narrative was intended to teach. Now, I think we can all agree that the intention of the author in this narrative is not to teach that we should use deception and dishonesty to achieve our ends. He's teaching something else. Therefore, according to this principle of interpretation, we should not suggest the author is affirming that we should follow Michal's example. Now, you might point to other places in Scripture, but I would suggest this isn't one you can point to. And so we can help ourselves as we read the Bible by asking ourselves, what is the author intending to teach when he tells this story? And as I have mentioned, I believe the author's intent in communicating these stories of David, is, uh, of David escaping death is to demonstrate that God is our deliverer and that he delivers us in a variety of ways. Now, sometimes in the Bible, an author does intend to teach us using the description of the action of others, but this should be arrived at with careful study and should not be assumed. Through the enterprising actions of Michal, David again escapes peril. And the final means of David escaping death makes it clear, I believe, that the preservation of David's life is to be attributed to the sovereign providential work of God. Point number four, escape through ecstasy, verses 18 through 24. The Lord delivers David through divine power. The last escape of chapter nine is a rather bizarre demonstration of God's saving power. In these verses, the means God uses to deliver David is a direct, unmistakable act of God in which the spirit of God comes upon those who are trying to apprehend David such that a spiritual ecstasy of sorts prevents them from killing David. David flees from his home. David flees from his family. He goes to Samuel. He, he's going to report Saul's action. I, I assume he's going to receive counsel. He's going to hopefully find respite from the attempts at his life. But Saul sends three parties of messengers to capture David. And even ends up leading a posse himself that he might catch David and put him to death. And the means of David's deliverance is the same in every case. The Spirit of God comes upon those allied against David, and they prophesy. Now, the specifics in regards to the first three parties aren't immediately given. We know that the Spirit came upon them, and that as they prophesied, they were unable to fulfill their mission. But the specifics, they're given in Saul's attempt, and they're a little bit weird. 
The Spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. And with the word also being used, we can assume the same thing happened to all of David's other assailants. Now I can imagine the disappointment in the faces of David's fan club when this story was retold to them. They would ask, how did David escape Saul at Naoth? Did Jonathan help him again by convincing Saul with bold rhetoric not to proceed with his plan? Did David employ his prowess in battle to feed his adversaries? Did he subdue them with a sling? Or did his wife, Michal, daringly deceive her husband's would-be killers with subterfuge only a loving wife could muster? Tell us, how did it happen? Well, actually, the Spirit of God came upon David's would-be killers. They got naked, they laid down, and they prophesied. It's not the escape many fans would be looking for, but it was an escape that is unmistakably the work of God. Despite this chain of events ending in a less than heroic fashion, what is clear is that it is the Lord who delivers David. One commentary summarizes chapter 19 this way. This chapter displays a variety of ways in which Saul's attempts to destroy David are providentially thwarted. Set over against human malignity is the protection of God. As I close this morning, I cannot help but think of this passage and this sermon in light of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper that we shared at the beginning of this service. The Lord's Supper is a memorial that symbolizes and affirms and proclaims God's deliverance of his people from their sin through his only begotten son. The Psalms of David declare repeatedly that God is our deliverer. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. Psalm 18, 2. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Psalm 40, verse 17. We see in the New Testament returning to Paul that he looks for a deliverer. In Romans 7, 24, and in looking for a deliverer, he cries out, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The body of death that Paul looks for deliverance from is, is a body of spiritual frustration and spiritual condemnation due to sins, sins that enslave every person under spiritual death, leave them in condemnation, leave them bound for hell. And so every human being, including everyone who hears me right now, every one of us needs to be delivered from an eternal precarious positions that our sins have put us under. And so each one of us should ask, who will deliver us? Who will deliver us from our sins, which have placed us in spiritual death, 
which have put us under condemnation, which deserve eternal punishment. Well, Paul has an answer to the question he himself raised. Who will deliver us? Paul responds with a glorious declaration of how we are delivered and who it is who delivers us. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, God is the deliverer who delivered David in many ways from many situations. David escapes ultimately through the deliverance worked by God, but the greatest and the most glorious deliverance God has worked, he worked through his son. When Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead to deliver us from sin. Believer, rejoice in this this morning. Rejoice in this great truth. God has delivered you from your sin. An unbeliever, call out this morning to God that he might deliver you from your sin through the death and resurrection of Jesus that you might experience reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sin, and the promise of everlasting life. David escaped as God delivered. We escape as God delivers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these stories of David in which we come to understand that in many ways and at many times you delivered David from death. You saved him. And we pray that you would help us by your spirit this morning to acknowledge to rejoice, to continue on in light of the fact that we have been delivered as well, that we have been delivered from sin through the work of Jesus Christ. I pray, Father God, that this would be a great purpose and a great motivation for all of us as we live out our lives this week and for those who don't know you, that it would be a continual call for them to turn from their sin and to trust in you and to believe in Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name, amen.